Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a special You Need a Horror podcast. Elephant in the room. Wow, Nick's really? not here. You start with fat jokes. <laughs> You're quick. I like that. <laughs> uh, I've got a special guest with me today. Snake Stoss is kind of becoming an honorary member. I think this is your third episode. Uh, Nick's right. busy. He's Yeah, he's got his Spider-Man stuff going on. He's doing his thing. I was going to hold off, and I was like, you know what? I know that sauce and me you know we don't always see eye to eye but one thing we see (laughs) eye to eye on is return of the living dead and so i thought let's get them back let's do return of living dead two and three super duper video today so we're going to talk about i've got the book we're going to talk about behind the scenes stuff memories of these two awesome sequels we're going to get all up in it there's no rules today but first of all sauce thank you for stepping in last minute to help me with this how are you doing dude bad doing all right you know it's all holiday season yeah messing around thanks for having me by the way i'm I'm, it's pleasure's all mine and your shirt you know this was so funny because the first episode i did with piz i told him hey can you do this podcast with me he's like sure what is it i said yeah you don't even need to you don't need to know you don't need to prep for it he wore a roy burns shirt and i did not (laughs) tell you what we were doing i think when i messaged you earlier i was like hey can i can i borrow you tonight Mm -hmm. you're like yeah and I was like, I don't need to tell you what's going on. And you wore you wore the shirt. I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Though to be fair, I think Piz and I both pretty much wear, you know, this shirt and a Roy Burns one respectively. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Y'all both have a clo- y'all both have a section in the closet just dedicated to the. I think Piz <laughs> probably has a fifteen twenty part five shirts. Man. Oh yeah. He's all in on that that movie. But anyway. If uh, you haven't seen any of the other episodes before, this is Steak Sauce, who runs uh, the podcast, the Off the Grill podcast. Right from the top, Sauce, where, where can people find what you've got going on? Um, off the Grill podcast on YouTube, podcast every Monday, 7.30 p.m. in the East, um, you know, and the various other videos as it goes. Um, I have a screen live commentary this Monday coming up. Um, and I want to hit the Patreon Patreon.com slash off the grill podcast. There it is. I'll have links for all that down below. Uh, so what we're going to do, guys, if you did not see part one, which is basically the Return of the Living Dead super discussion, uh, groundbreaking episode. I mean, that was just buck wild. One of my favorite episodes that we've done, quite possibly my favorite. Uh, please pause this now, and I, I you have to go watch that. Uh, there were some things that were left out of that because, I mean, we can only – discuss the, the movie for so long before we, we just have to go i mean eventually one of us is gonna have to go to the bathroom or something i think we went hard nearly two hours i have no idea how long this one's gonna go we skipped over some stuff that i know people were wanting us to talk about the brian peck situation which we'll get into that here today uh but what we're gonna do today is we're gonna be discussing uh, return of the living dead part two and three because there's there's dedicated fan bases i i don't know man sauce i feel like i see more people that love three than two do you see the same yeah, thing? Definitely see that more often. Um, and don't know, you know, not to not to put the cart before the horse. I don't really know if I agree with that, but that that does definitely seem to be the the popular sentiment. Yeah. Well, let's let's cap things off from the last time. So, Return of the Living Dead comes out in 1985, and it is a it, it's a hit. Uh, and a few years later, in 1988, we would get Return of the Living Dead Part Two. I'm going to give you guys, so I'm going to be referencing this book today, The Complete History of the Return of the Living Dead, which is quite possibly one of my favorite books ever. 
uh, so detailed. And what I love about the print form of these kinds of documentary style books, if you will, is the honesty in them is, is insane. I mean, I've sauce can attest. I mean, I, I love more brains. It's a great documentary. And then they also have uh, a documentary for part two and three. There's there won't, they won't stay dead and love from beyond the grave, I believe is what the third part is called. And they're great. But when there's a camera, there's no telling. You don't see who's off to the side. You don't see if there's other actors hanging out, watching the interviews with the said person being talked uh, that's talking to the camera. But I just feel like there's a little bit of, you know, acting going on sometimes with some of these people. And they're not being totally honest. These books are totally honest. The Crystal Lake Memories is the same way. It's brutal. They all hated each other. They, it was miserable experiences for so much of these people. And Return of Living Dead is probably one of the most volatile film sets ever. Uh, but when you watch more brains, some of the people are just happy-go-lucky. Uh, except, I mean, William Stout is the only honest guy I think I've ever seen in one of those. Well, William Stout and John Philbin. Yes. You know, John Philbin, is, he's like, what fucking set were these guys on? You know, like it was miserable. Everyone was mad at each other. Like you said, everyone was pissed off at each other, you know. It's more or less an indie shoot, small budget, right? You know, and Dan O'Bannon's not the wasn't the easiest guy to work with. No, he was not. And Gen- again, genius as he was, yeah. And again, guys, if you never saw part one, we talked all about uh, Beverly Randolph going to Dan O'Bannon's house <laughs> and uh, walking in on pornography on his TV with guns, an array of guns on the table, which I could, I could understand her getting a little upset. Yeah. Uh, she she booked it apparently. I, I don't know how the follow up meeting went with that. I would love to know more about that if she said something to him or not. Probably not, knowing how uh, just kind and angelic she seems. She probably seemed scared to bring it up. I, I would imagine the only reason she brought it up in the documentary was because Dan was already dead. Otherwise, she probably would have felt <laughs> awkward to bring that up. But you know, all right. Let's set the stage, Sauce. <clears throat> here's a here's a, 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 an excerpt from the. Uh, First page of uh, Return of Living Dead Part 2 in here. I'm just going to read one paragraph that kind of leads things off. Ken Wiederhorn would ultimately be responsible for both writing and directing Return of the Living Dead Part 2. Uh, it first entered the movie industry during the early 1970s as an assistant editor. He was based in New York. He worked for CBS's Arthur Barron on a variety of documentaries before taking over as editor on a docudrama about the Wright Brothers for NET Playhouse in 71. From there, he would collaborate with such filmmakers as Arthur Penn before landing a six-week gig on the James Bond flick, Live and Let Die. It was during that time, observing how director Guy Hamilton's methods differed from the New York filmmakers he'd known before, that he would reevaluate his own concept on how motion pictures should be shot and edited. Uh, so Ken Wiederhorn, one thing I, I, I initially found about uh, watching they won't stay dead is um, despite the fact that uh, Ken seemed to not really be into doing part two or not necessarily doing into part two. We're gonna, I'm going to talk about something I learned again from reading here. It seemed like he's got a pretty good reputation or uh, just from the people that he worked with in terms of like, as just being a good human being and being a talented guy, you know, have you seen any other films he's done? Uh, Shockwaves is a pretty damn good little movie he's done. I can't think off the top of my head if I've seen anything else he's done. Um, but yeah, everything I know about him, he, you know, fine guy, just, you know. Yeah. <sighs> and he just doesn't talk- seem like the kind of guy that can, can BS his way if his heart's not in into a project, though. Right. 
Yeah. Uh, and we're going to talk more about Ken, but we're also going to get personal with this. Now, Sauce, remind remind the people, I think you said that Return of the Living Dead Part 2 was the first one you saw. Yes, uh, definitely. For And there's like a pretty big gap between me seeing uh, Part 2 and then finally seeing the original. Um, to the point where, like, just because of the tone, the tone, it's, it's pretty over-the-top comedy-wise. Um, so I just, even from a young age, oh, this is like a, it's a joke movie. It's just like a, it's like a Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein kind of, kind of spoof of zombie movies. Return of the Living Dead Part Two, if as a standalone title, sounds like a parody, you know, get it? Uh huh, sequels, you know. But, uh, so, and then eventually I saw three, even. So I, I, I saw both of these sequels before the original, um, from probably eight or nine years old. And so you had a, did you have uh, an affinity for the part, for part two seeing it? Was it a film that you would love to revisit or? I, it was, anytime it was on sci-fi, I think it's usually a go-to channel. I was like, oh, cool. All right. I know what I'm doing today. Yeah. You know, and, and it was always back to back two and three. So. Wow. It's interesting that, so you, so part one was the one you saw ladder from two and yeah. three. So, Wow. Mm-hmm. Probably, what did you think? I want to say I was 15 or 16 when I saw it return for the first time. So there's a good seven, eight year gap. As weird as that sounds. So I'm wondering, like, what were you expecting to go in going into Return of the Living Dead after watching two? Hell is this gonna uh, be? Because two I, and three are so different. It, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of figured just because that's like, you know two comes after one, you know, as this counting goes, um, that maybe it's a little more tonally in line with two, just maybe a little better made. Right. It's probably the only real expectation I had, um, a little better effects. Cause I'm not big on two's effects for the most part, uh, which will, which we will yeah. get into. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's there's, there's a lot of meat on that bone. I think. Uh, I'm trying to remember for me. I know, I think I told this last time. So, Cinemasker.com, James, uh, he had reviewed Return of the Living Dead. This was right after I found Angry Video Game Nerd. And I was going on his, his website and I would see him do some reviews. And I, I remember watching Return of the Living Dead. And like we talked about before, uh, I love the title now. I love it to death. But when upon hearing it, it just seemed so, uh, it seemed like such a, I almost want to say like a lazy title or or just like a non-important title, just Return of the Living Dead. You know, that could go many ways, the film, you know, it could have been, I mean, I thought it was going to be a direct sequel to Night of the Living Dead initially until right. when I heard the title, but the trailer pretty much, or not the trailer, the review James did made me so enticed to see it, but you know. Yeah, and, and actually talking now, there's just, it's, weird how your brain works there's memories i remember like seeing this and not connecting it with the other two movies but seeing like this uh the vhs box cover you know in the rental store and just return to that who cares that sounds dumb because it does it's title alone and you know as a young kid you know let's face it we weren't too old by the time the vhs store or like the rental stores were kind of passe but uh um i don't know i don't didn't know what punk rock was 
or or if I did it with some like weird cartoony version, right? Like uh, what is it? The, the Beats, the the, the the band from Doug. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> well, that brings back some memories. I'll tell you that right now. Holy crap! Oh man. Um. So yeah, just, but you're right. I mean, the title is okay. It sounds like it was made for ten bucks. Right. You know. Yeah. So, matter of fact, let me see if I can get it. In, if I get my poster to show up, there it is. Now you can see it behind me. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, so I remember after watching part one, I uh I never saw a review for part two or nothing like that. It was just an innocent. I used to go to Fye when I was wanting to when I got into physical media around the, the same time. And I remember I wanted to I wanted to own Return of Living Dead. I did the I, I think you brought this up last time too. Uh, and I don't think some people know this because I have people that watch the channel that are you know I forget. I mean they're born in like the year two thousand and they're twenty <laughs> they're twenty years old now. I mean what the hell is going yeah. on? But uh, Netflix. I remember I used to get the you'd have to rent. They mail you DVDs, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. which was a disaster because they were, every time I would rent one, dude, they'd be scratched to hell. Some of them wouldn't even play when I would get them. Luckily, Return wasn't a case. But I remember I did the Netflix rent a DVD, and it was a DVD. It never had the. I remember. I remember it never had the artwork of the movie on the front. It was literally just a blank DVD, but it had side A on one side and side B on the other side. I don't remember if I watched both, but I was like, I don't know if that was a if that was a burn disc or what. So that was as far as I know, um, and. A little, I'm speaking, you know, out of my ass a little bit, but that was like the, the bare bones MGM release. Just that it was like first wave of that movie coming out. Side A, side B, it was widescreen, full screen. Was, I think the only feature was like a trailer, maybe. And one of those, like those, uh, here's like a, it's a slideshow of facts about the movie that don't matter, you know? Oh, uh, okay. It's more or less just, it was filmed here and released here on this day. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, so that's and I actually rented probably obviously not the same copy, but that's the first time I watched it on DVD was from Netflix. Um, had plans to, to do the old oh it never showed up guys I don't know what to tell you. But <laughs> just, you know, oh man! Uh, I, I obviously just ended up sending it back. Luckily, not too far after there was that green variant of the DVD. If you like, it's a like green and black. It's got weird alternate looking zombies on it right uh, that might as well be fake but kind of comparatively packed with features it had that nice little like the horror in the 80s kind of feature it on it yes uh, yeah yeah which i have all those yeah. <laughs> but I, anyway getting back to it so i remember i was like well let me go uh buy return of the living dead at FY, I want to own the film now. And I remember I went to, and, and I think that right around that same time that DVD had come out. I might have bought the MGM DVD with the classic mm-hmm. artwork on it, which I'm sure I've still got somewhere in these, in the bottles of this room. But, um, so when I went there, I was going to find Return of the Living Dead. And sure enough, there was Return of the Living Dead part two. And to my surprise, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, there, there's a sequel. Uh, cool. Let me, let me go ahead and grab this too. And the artwork right away, uh, the poster or, or the cover of the DVD, I thought I thought it was just beautiful. That yeah. uh, that tornadoes, I call it the tornado zombie, if you will. Yeah. You know, uh, I think that's pretty apt. I'm going to throw something out, and I wonder if you agree with it or not. Sure. I will say, artwork alone, two is better than the original. Yeah, that's something I I I, I uh, would I I would initially like uh, right off the 
like right off gut answer, I would totally agree with that. I feel ashamed to say that though. Yeah. In a sense, you yeah, know, it feels very wrong. Is, I mean, this is fantastic. Don't I'm not shitting on this one. I'm just saying that it's a it's a work of art. Iconic. Yeah. It's a beautiful work of art. Yeah, absolutely. So I remember I grabbed it and um of course I remember going home and we watched me and my brother watched Return of the Living Dead and he loved it too. And I was like, well, let me watch part two. And it was interesting. I don't remember my initial thought about the movie. It was certainly a film that that would grow on me like a weed. And I would really start to love the music for it and going on uh you know, just going on YouTube and saying, Let me try to find that song I'm hearing. Because I'm hearing this flesh to flesh and bite to bite. I'm like, damn, that song hits hard. So the film would grow on me uh, tremendously over the years. And I, I think I've I've talked about this before. Uh, that one of the things that Return of the Living Dead Part 2 has done for me, uh, above any other Return of the Living Dead or probably any other movie that I can I can genuinely think of, is it, it, is it gave me one of my all-time favorite artists ever was Ju- finding Julian Cope from Return of the Living Dead Part 2. When I heard that song kick in in the beginning uh, with the the, the pot-smoking uh, army lift driver, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, well, this song is just slamming. What is this? I, I, I never heard anything like that before. And I was like, let me find out what that is. I looked it up, Space Opera. And it's, man, it's one of my favorite. He's one of my favorite artists. That album, that matter of fact, that it's the album's called St. Julian. And, uh, that song was on the album, and so I bought the album, and it's become top five of my favorite records of all time. Wow. So that's a gift that I mean, that's a gift that I could uh, that that's that film will always be my good graces. It it has its uh, detractors. There's, there's a lot of people that don't hate it, but there's things I really like about it. And we're going to discuss uh, part two. And one thing I want to get right here in the book uh, was casting and the 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 birth of part two because. Um, What's what's kind of told in the documentary uh, on Return of Living Dead on the on the They Won't Stay Dead documentary, which Ken Wiederhorn wasn't a part of, was that, you know, Ken just wrote the script for the movie, which really wasn't the case. I don't know if this page kind of question, but Ken does talk about casting and uh, getting people in here. Uh, Let's see. I think I got it right here. Uh, Let's see. Well, here's a little bit of tidbit facts about it. Much like the crew, very few actors from the first film would be involved to reprise their roles for the sequel. Although Louisville had become obliterated at the end of Return of the Living Dead, there was talk that many of the actors would have a role in the sequel if one were ever produced, which I think Beverly said she got a call after part one came out from, I don't know if it was the producers or her agent, but she was led to the have the impression that they were going to do a sequel with everybody again. Yeah. You know? Which who knows how that would have worked out, but quickly, uh, good. I think that's a big missed opportunity. Um, uh, you know, I wasn't alive then, so whatever. I don't have like, oh, they, I was, I would say this since the beginning, but that's a. I don't think that happens often enough in movies in general, or you just cast a sequel. It's all the same actors doing different parts. Um, it, Mike Flanagan did it a little bit with uh, the haunting of Hill House and Bly Manor. Um, he uses a lot of same the same actors though, just kind of uh, in all of his his productions. But it'd just be cool to, to to see that whole cast just doing something different. Maybe not even you know switch it up totally. Just like whatever. I mean, you. I mean, could you not see uh, Jewel Shepherd or Beverly Randolph being a, you know, a little older than high school, but still sister? to uh the kid if you still went that route or 
maybe you would have got a whole different movie if someone else had written it. Yeah, yeah. Or if Dan would have come back, but you know, Dan Dan seemed like the kind of guy he seem he kind of reminds he kind of seems like Carpenter in the sense like he gets it all out one movie and doesn't like to do much sequels about anything. Yeah. So that's probably why he didn't do another one. But uh, right here, let's see. Let me pick back up. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, let's see. But once the second film rolled in production, few cast members were ever considered for the roles, although the double act of James Caron and Tom Matthews would once again become the focal point of the story at the request of Tom Fox. In the script, veteran gravedigger Ed and his new apprentice Joey appear outside the cemetery, accompanied by Joey's girlfriend. Brenda, once again, Ed is showing his new partners the trick of the trade, how to steal jewelry from corpses to make a quick buck. Joey is the quiet type and desperate for work, although Brenda clearly despises his new boss. Uh, despite the success of Return of the Living Dead, Matthews was still a struggling actor, though before long he would land the starring role in Jason Lives, the sixth installment in the long-running Friday the 13th franchise released by Paramount in 86. The movie would eventually earn almost $20 million in the box office. While it's performed less than its predecessors, the film had renewed fan interest after the negative backlash against the previous movie, allowing Matthews himself a more action-oriented heroic role. Karen, meanwhile, had remained busy on a variety of other projects. Soon after filming Rabbit and Return of the Living Dead, he had commenced work on the thriller Jagged Edge, starring starring alongside Jeff Bridges and Glenn Close. This would be followed by the appearances in the Dan O'Bannon scripted remake of The Invaders from Mars and Oliver Stone's critically acclaimed drama Wall Street, which would also feature an Academy Award-winning Turned by Michael Douglas. I need to do. I need to to dip into James Karen's uh, filmography more. I was just thinking that I do. I do like Wall Street a bunch. Um, yeah, he's a guy Obviously, that it's much much different. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> probably oh, yeah. most of the other things Karen's been in, but <clears throat> oh, without question, I, I I do know that James Karen passed away roughly. Was it twenty eighteen? Twenty nineteen, somewhere around there. Yeah. Because it I think hurt. Kalfa was the year before that. Yeah, Kalfa was painful, and James Karen hurt. I just can't believe Clue is still with us. I mean, that is remarkable. I think Amen. he's in his nineties. Yeah, that's so being going out easy. I hope not. <laughs> I pray he, not. he might take death with him. Yeah, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Here's a few things that Ken Wiederhorn said about uh, Jim Jim's Karen. Uh, Ken Wiederhorn says that Jimmy Karen was a consummate professional, always there, helpful with the Joker too. When Matthews discovered I wanted Suzanne Snyder, this is this is something I found interesting uh, that I didn't know about. When Tom Matthews discovered uh, I wanted to have Suzanne Snyder play Brenda to be driving his truck in the scene where he and Jimmy were dropped off at the cemetery, he at first refused to do the scene, insisting his character would never let his girlfriend behind the wheel of his beloved truck. As the as the crew stood by, it took me a good ten minutes to convince Tom otherwise. What do you think about that? That seems a little interesting. I mean, is it the sign of the times back then, or, or? I mean, that's that's definitely the sign of the times. But it's a cat that you know knows or thinks he knows his character. You know, I mean, that's what I would know, chalk what, it up to. Whether they're method or not, like they still a lot of times will put backstory into a character. You know, even if it's just in their head, because it'll help them get to where they need to be to do what they've got to do. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it's some, eh, girls can't drive, you know, some like ogre shit like that. But. Yeah. 
Very interesting. I didn't it know is, that. It is interesting. I've read this book, and that, but I mean, it was probably ten years ago at this point. There's so uh, much. Yeah, there's yeah. so much. Uh, there's so much knowledge here. It's impossible to retain it and, on one read. Yeah, and I'll say too, for anyone that I don't, I, I mean, it's long out of print. But anyone, if you can get your hands on it, it goes much deeper in depth on the sequels than the, the more brains. Oh yeah, I mean, here, here's uh, just threads do. Like I said, guys, I was telling Sauce, I was like, I kind of bookmarked some important things or things that I thought would be great for conversation. And I mean, this book is just chock full of information. And I even have stuff about the latter sequels in the back, uh, Necropolis and and uh, Rave to Grave. That's fake. Yeah. We're not doing an episode on those. <laughs> um, so, Sauce, I'm going to bring up a few more things. Uh, so, Obviously, as people would see that this film does not only has the two main stars from the previous film, which were James Karen and um, uh, Tom Matthews. And I, for one, would have loved to have seen Don Kalfa be in the film. And now in the documentary, uh, More More Brains, which people need to see, I'll be honest with you guys. Somebody's uploaded More Brains to YouTube so you yeah. can watch it there. More I would, and, and, uh, yeah, and the featurettes yeah. for two and three. And the featurettes um, for two and three. Those are different channels the same guy didn't do all put all three things up yeah. but they're all they're all easily available when i need something to get me through the day at work that's i always put that on and i just listen yeah. to it and it's so comfortable yeah. uh so in the documentary don talks about don kalfa he talks about he he auditioned and didn't get the part and he kind of left it at that excuse me but in here i finally found what he kind of went through he goes this is from Don Kalfa. He goes, well, you know, I'd rather not go over this, but I'll tell you. I was up for the role of a doctor, a drunken doctor. I read and I didn't get it. It went to Philip Bruns, who can be very good and very effective. He was an off-Broadway comic. I can't for the life of me remember if I saw the movie. And to be honest, I couldn't give a fair opinion on it. I know I had written a sequel for our movie with Roger Carney called Revenge of the Living Dead. And I gave it to Tom Fox. And that was the end of that. I also gave it to Dan O'Bannon, who, by the way, loved it. I didn't know that. I had no idea that Calfa wrote a treatment and sent it to Dan. I, I, I'd love to. I mean, I, I'm sure it's lost the time, I'm sure. But I would love to be able to look at that. Oh, me too. You know, um, maybe it's online. I don't know. I, I've never I've never seen anything or heard anything about this, you know, yeah. before reading this. Yeah, it's again. I mean, that's something that I don't i didn't like retain from reading it the first time um but i, I always saw you know I mean, after i saw the, the original i i saw kalfa as that doctor who by the way the, that actor did fine you know with the tone of that movie i think, very slapstick yeah yep, you yeah. know he works a little better he's he's uh also um pretty sure anyway um just a little piece of trivia He's uh, George Costanza's original father. The first time uh, Frank Costanza appears, right? Um, now in reruns now, and I'm not sure on Netflix what the deal is. Um, in reruns, they did reshoot this, that the first episode he's in with uh, Jerry Stiller, but uh-huh. they, uh, yeah. So originally, it was I'm pretty sure it was that guy. Uh, so Don Calvary here adds a little bit more. Uh, so he said he gave his treatment to Dan and he goes, he loved it, which amazes me because he doesn't like anything anyway. <laughs> a, yeah. He goes, anyway, a gag wound would end up in the film of a severed zombie hand. And I thought, Hmm, well, you know what you're going to do. 
I would say I was treated terribly. Me, Jimmy, and Clue, those two are pieces of Americana and are remarkable lead actors, and the three of us were the cornerstone of return. But what are you going to do? I read for Wiederhorn again, and he never even acknowledged that he met me before. Now that Jimmy mentioned that, he and Tom Matthews rang me from the set one night, and it was nighttime, I believe, and they were saying, Hey, Don, thank God you didn't do this movie. We're on our own, and we're shooting at night. I said, how's Phil Bruns doing? And they said, he's just too over the top. But sometimes that can work, which I think we kind of alluded to that we both would agree that he he I think he was he got the role because, quite frankly, he was probably more in line with what Ken Wiederhorn was looking for. You have to give Ken Wiederhorn, Ken Wiederhorn the benefit of the doubt that he knew exactly what tone he was going for with this movie to begin with, which yeah. is probably why Don didn't get it. I, I, I still would have loved to have seen Don in the movie, but I do like the the actor that we got. Yeah, and I guess it's a case where Wiederhorn, I don't think, from what he's talked about. I think he did the he did a commentary on the the original DVD release, but I don't know how much he'd spoken about it outside of that and maybe the book. Um but this isn't a case of like studio interference where, you know, the director is like, ah, this is not the movie I want. This is exactly what he wanted to do because he wanted to not have to do horror movies anymore. So he wanted to look, I could do comedy, guys. Hire me for something else. Get me out of here, please. And I think he will on that on that DVD uh, commentary. I think he does pretty much kind of say, yeah. Really had no interest in horror. <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't, which yeah. is interesting. And some of his his probably most notable films are horror movies. Eyes of a Stranger, which is a slasher film. Shockwaves, which Shockwaves is a pretty damn good movie. Uh, and obviously, Return of the Living Dead too. So that the irony is that some of these guys. I mean, Carpenter was the same way. He wanted to make westerns for God's sakes. Yeah. Um, but let's get a little bit more personal, really quick. So, um, Return of the Living Dead Part Two. What are some of the things that really stand out to you? whether it be nostalgia or things now when you watch the film that you genuinely just enjoy? What, what gets you through the film, so to speak? So, I mean, uh, Matthews and Karen are as over, over the top as they were. It's still played in the first one. They're right. probably, I think they amp it up probably twofold um, in this one. And it still works. They, they, they know, they know and there's a, just like a, an inborn kind of like, oh, I, I know what I'm doing. I, I know what this is. And right. they, they know how to, to amp it up or pull it back, you know, just instinctively. That's the word I was looking for for three fucking minutes. <laughs> um, and so, like, that's fun to watch now. As a kid, I'm actually the uh, the, the the lead bully kid, um, the one that eats his mom's brains. I can find his name. Um, uh, Tor Van something or something or other um i guess the only movie he ever did thor van lingen or lingen yeah however you pronounce it um he scared the shit out of me as a kid actually like once he turns like there's pretty effective for a kid that wasn't an actor he was just kind of cast you know they held just open auditions and then he got the part right um you know i think even still like he's still pretty threatening uh, you know, to to uh, how's that the other kid's name? The uh, lead this, kid, the nice little yeah. nice guy. What's his face? Blondie. 
It's funny because I was looking for some interviews from him in here. Um, Jonathan Terry is the colonel. <laughs> Kenny Myers. Uh, Marsha Dietland. I, I wish you. I wish Marsha would have been in the documentary, like for video, because I love her. Uh, Jesse's older sister. I thought she okay. was so so yeah. cute and adorable. I love her in the movie, but I, I mean, I wish she would have been in there. Trying to see uh, what the kid's name is. Did they? Maybe the kid wasn't around for the book to do it, but I can't find him. Any interviews from him in here? Dana Ashbrook's all in here. Yeah. Uh, you know, can't yeah, find him. Uh, can't find the kid. Yeah, Torva and Lingen was also on the. Uh, it was one of those old commentaries where it's just like they piece together two interviews more or less. You know, like that, or or I think they both watched the movie separately and they they would kind of switch from one track to the next. Right. Um, he, I mean, he, he had fun and it was, it was like, it was just cool. My basketball team thought it was the coolest guy, which, you know, it's got to be pretty sweet. I know the uh, Jacob from Nightmare 5 had like quite the opposite experience, but. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I was, I was, I was seeing something. Well, first, you know, when I, when I watched Return of Living Dead 2, I, I don't know what it is. I just it's one of those it's one of those comfort movies for me. Return Limited Two is one of the one of those movies I can throw on at any time and mm-hmm. just I love I, and I do I I don't know I'm not really a big fan of kid actors. I mean I I don't I don't go out of my way to watch movies with them, but I always liked Jesse in this one and uh, the villain. Uh, he like like James Karen said he had a skull head and he was just like a creepy bully. He had a creepy yeah. look. You know, them hanging out at the mausoleum was probably something I would have done at that age, too, because before <laughs> the, the cell phone age and all that technology, something creepy hey, let's about see how much that. trouble we can get into. Yeah. You know, and I, I and just I, I go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, I love the tone of this movie. I, I you know, I, I'm, I love horror comedy. That's my number one favorite subgenre of horror, uh, especially when it's done right. And this one, I just feel like. uh I don't know, man. I, I it, it it's hard for me to find movies that have this tone that would work for me. Uh, but I got to give it to Ken. I mean, it's not a perfect movie, uh, but but there are things I really like about it. Despite the 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 uh, handicaps that it was given, we're going to talk about Kenny Myers. You know, I think there is some cool artwork. I mean, uh, special effects in here. There's some stuff that's incredibly done well. Like there's a paraplegic, I believe, uh, zombie in here that yeah. we got from. You know, kind of like we had the dwarf in part one and yeah. we had a paraplegic in this one. Uh, but there were also some problems and we're, we're going to get into that. Um, but getting on, getting Kenny Myers onto the film, he would uh, talk about working with Ken and, you know, Ken. He talks again. He talks good about Ken Wiederhorn, but they just, you know, he made it seem like it was almost like a like a drag to be there making the movie because, mm-hmm. you know. You got a guy. I, I was trying to find the actual quote in here. My sticky note might have got misplaced, but what I read in here was something I wanted to bring up. Now I remember it vividly in here, so I know that this is the truth. Ken uh, Ken Wiederhorn had a script written already, and it was called Grave Robbers. And uh, Tom Fox liked that script and just said, "Hey, what if we just made this Return of the Living Dead too?" And Ken was like. I mean, if it's going to get me a job, sure, because he needed a job. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Tom Fox had him rewrite 
portions of the script to make it a Return of the Living Dead film. In essence, adding the 245 trioxin barrel and things like that. Uh, I, so I was always under the impression that Ken Wiederhorn was just like, uh, let me watch the first movie and then just kind of rip it off, like literally yeah. just do it over again. And that just wasn't the case. And I feel like that's somewhat of a narrative that's put out there by the documentaries themselves and the interviews that people have given, which isn't necessarily true uh, or it's not true really at all. I mean, I, I, I was, I don't remember reading that, but it's interesting to note that he had already written a script that Tom Fox, what was, I wonder what was going through Tom Fox's mind. Obviously he was a banker. Like he really must've just been like, he got lucky, right? I mean, he produced well, a good film and uh, that, I mean, that's I think a lot of producers are just, they're money guys, you know, like that's kind of, uh, you know, pull it to Bob Shea, you know, the producer um, in West Craven. So yeah, producers of money guy, shut up. Let me make my movie, you know, and Shea didn't like that, but most, most other producers are totally cool. with just going, yeah, here's some money. I kind of was thinking this, but again, I'm just a money guy. Right. So when you hit on something like return, well, it's just, See if we let's just milk it for more money. They don't give it. They don't have. There's. They don't necessarily have that same the way we feel about the movies. I love that movie because it made me a shitload of money. You know, <laughs> so I could I could take the proceeds from that and hopefully make you know we're half even half the proceeds and, and make more money off of it. Yeah, because even if they're only making seventy percent, which I think is kind of the statistic for what a sequel does compared to the original. Um. Even if only it's 70%, that's still free money, more or less. Yeah, I mean, because um, so. they probably still made four or five times the budget of what it was for part oh, two, yeah. at yeah. least, right? I mean, it was profitable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were, we're going to start talking about Kenny Myers real quick for part two. Now, here's something Kenny said about working with Ken. He says, I knew he was unhappy through casual conversations during filming. And even though I liked him as a person, I thought he felt like a fish out of water. He either didn't understand the workings of the original picture or the genre wasn't what he was directing. I don't really know. Or perhaps there were other circumstances. It's hard to say. He was not a fan. He didn't know who Forrest Ackerman was when he showed up for a cameo in the film. To me, that's someone who didn't really have a background in the material. I knew he had directed a horror film about Nazis returning from the dead, but not an intended comedy zombie picture. That's that's Shockwaves, which is a pretty damn okay. good movie. In my humble opinion, he didn't understand what many of us knew from the beginning, and that was the comedy of Return was character-driven by people in unusual situations, not driven by the slapstick, slapstick silliness of the zombies. But I felt my job was not to argue with the director, but to support his vision, right or wrong. I don't feel it created any undue tension. And for me, uh, a, ma- a malice of feeling. It was all just wasted time and effort. So again, Kenny was a guy that just bad memories. But on the Scream Factory Blu-ray, he has talked about how, and this book is, I think, at least a decade old, like you were saying, he has talked about now how he's like the more time has gone away. I'm able to go back and watch the film and have better memories about it, which is interesting and happy for me to see that. Cause I don't, if I love a movie, I don't want to hear people trash it. You know, I just, you know, it's like watching, I'm a big Halloween three fan. So when I put on the documentary, Erwin, you they start out the documentary with Erwin, you saying this movie's stupid. I don't know why they would have done this. I'm like, well, shit, man, why am I watching this? Like I'm a fan. <laughs> You know, what the hell is going on here? 
yeah. I went through a period, I think, after seeing the original, like, oh, two sucks. It's lame. It's no good. And I'm glad I kind of fought it out of that. Um, it's, you know, it's it's very different tonally, but it's still good. It's, you know, it's got a lot of merit to it, um, you know, for, for a sequel, late 80s horror sequel. No, let's talk about the special effects work on this film. Now, it's important to note that uh, William Stout basically said, "If you if you try to do anything that looks like my film, we're gonna have it. We're gonna have a problem." So obviously, Kenny had to I do al- his own thing, right? I almost think he uh, almost word for word, "I'll sue the shit out of you." Right. <laughs> uh, and, and Stout seems like a like he seems like a guy that just like you don't want to fuck with him, no. you know. I like I like him a lot because he is a no BS kind of guy. And, and he's a straight shooter, absolutely. Yeah. But Kenny Myers, uh, it, it's interesting. There are things about this film. I mean, there are some designs in this film that I think are just brilliant. I mean, Kenny is so talented. Uh, but unfortunately, he fumbles. And knowing the circumstances now, I don't really hold it against him so much. But like... Uh, you know, the tar man design, it just, uh, it, it, I guess if I had to call it anything, it was like a great value version yeah. as it's like, you know, it's the Sam's choice version yeah. to, you know, tar man being Coke. And this is Sam's club Coke. Yeah. And, and it looks like just like a giant action figure. Like, you know, like the arms can only go up and down like this. And, you know, like it's very boxy. It's weird. It doesn't have, you know, and, and it's still uh Troutman in, in the, the costume but it doesn't have that like you know like he can fall apart at any moment kind of uh effect to it yeah i mean and, and as far as the scene goes you know it's weird it's like i like it but there it, it does leave a lot to be desired yeah. you don't get a whole lot of tar men's movements no. and, and i think that's one of those things where you know he said hey rewrite this script and we'll make return of the living dead too so they went, and we need to get Tarman in here. We you know that was that's a big kind of iconic uh, piece of imagery from the first one. So we need to have it in the second one, Ken. You know, so he's okay. Well, here he is, going <laughs> get getting the getting the creek, or whatever it's... the hell. And if memory serves, he never shows back up the entire movie. Oh, oh that is the only scene. And that, you know, when when, we, when you put it into perspective that way, I mean, it's it literally was just like a quota. Uh, we got we got to have this. We got to have that. It's like um, that Sean Cunningham formula. <laughs> yeah, you know. But some of the designs that Kenny would do, I thought were brilliant. Uh, you know, especially it's very slapstick, but of course. But like uh, one of the, I, she, I, she looks like an old school teacher or something when she comes out of the grave and she puts her yeah. glasses on. Some yeah. of those designs are brilliant, man. I'll say this. I think a lot of the background zombies in this one are the lesser, you know, the ones that aren't the featured kind of looks, they look better at this one than they didn't. The first movie, the background zombies are just kind of like, I don't know, here's like a weird, like yellowish paint, you know. Um, they didn't really, there's not a whole lot of uh, makeup done on, on, the, on the, the running, the background zombies in the first one. There was a little more care taken as far as that goes. And I think. As a sequel, they decided, well, fuck it, man. Let's just spend all the money on effects. We'll get whoever we can get. We'll get, we'll right. pay uh, Tom and, and James, you know, whatever they want. 
or you know, whatever, a little more than probably the rest of the cast, even though they're not like the focal point of the story, really. Um, they're the catalyst for everything kind of going to shit, but. So let me ask you this, Sauce. Who was your favorite character from Turn of Living Dead Part 2? Oh. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big Suzanne Snyder mark. Isn't she so cute in this movie oh, with her nice yeah. red hair and everything? Mm-hmm. And yeah. she's sassy, you yeah. know? Um, I like the doctor. I, again, as over the top as he is, I, it works for this movie. And it's kind of fun just to see him just kind of like, oh, just going to keep drinking. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, this, this car's cherry, pal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and you know the the zombie that gets on the the uh, the inter not the intercom, but the, you know the Harry Truman. Uh, he kind of he looks like Ryan Stiles from uh, the Drew Carey show and in, in Who's Line. Oh yeah, <laughs> he does. <laughs> yeah. God, I haven't watched that show in years, yeah. man. Dude, when you mentioned that the quota in this movie was so weird, like that was something that they decided to to do as well. That mm-hmm. quotable line, uh, you know, wow, I, when I, I I didn't really put that together till just now, but like that was another call back to the first movie. Mm-hmm. Just interesting, you know, when you really look at the film from it from that uh from that lens. But uh, one thing I wanted to mention real quick was in here I wasn't finding an answer on what happened with the initial DVD release. Now I'm going to tell you what the, what the rumor was, and I'm going to tell you what my personal thought is. And I want to know your thoughts on the actual music. So I'm sure you bought the DVD of return of living part two, and you would watch the movie and you would hear this music. And then you would probably find out, well, the VHS or whatever had different music. The rumor was something happened with the license of, the music, uh, the original score for the movie. And so when the DVD came out, it was changed. Um, and I would try to research this. I would look stuff up about this and I could never find anything about it. The Blu-ray comes out, they interview the composer and all he talked about was they had somebody doing the score. They put the music to the film. Ken wasn't happy. And when he was cutting it, the music in, and he was like, this guy doesn't have the, he's not getting the vibe. He's mm-hmm. not getting the slapstick. So he eventually got pulled off or they pulled him off and they read the, redid the score again. So the Blu-ray comes out and it's the original score on there again. Nobody has ever talked about a logistic reason of what happened with that DVD. Okay. The soundtrack, the music from is the same. So as far as a lawsuit goes, that wouldn't make any sense to me. There's still Julian Cope on the DVD. There's still Joe Lamont on the DVD. This, the placement of Flesh to Flesh is different. Flesh to Flesh plays in the car chase scene on the original soundtrack version, which is on the Blu-ray now. But on the DVD, Flesh to Flesh plays right at the credits, Yeah, which I kind of prefer there, to be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, I, I like it in the credits. But this is the first thing I want to get at. The scores... Which one do you prefer? I mean, honestly, taking away or putting it in, in any aspect you want, because me personally, I don't know which one I prefer, but I'll tell you, I am a fan of that DVD score. I do like some of the beats and hits, especially when the grave scene happens, when everybody's coming out that, which is the yeah. intro to the show. Yeah. And I turn into like a bop 
you know, but that score, I love that. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I can't pick one over the other myself. Um, they're both fine. You know, neither one is like mind blowing and, and, I'd be shocked if there's a lot of people like I got to get my hands on a vinyl for this, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, I did, version. but I'm a psychopath. Well, I mean, a little different case, I think. But um, and now I don't know if you know this, but on the DVD release, if you switch it to the French language, the French like dub or whatever, it's the original um, from like the VHS release. That that's the music that plays. Okay, that is so interesting. I never did that, but it is so interesting that you mentioned that. Here's my thinking: What happened, Sauce? I think that whoever what Warner Brothers when they put that DVD out, they just grabbed a print with the original music, the original original music on it, meaning yeah. the guy who got fired. I think that's what happened. It wasn't a lawsuit. It wasn't a a an issue with the rights. I think somebody just, like they they just grabbed a print with the original score because I've never read anything about a lawsuit before, but that, that, that became the thing people would talk about. I mean, what do you think? Yeah. I don't know if there was ever like anyone going, I'll sue you. If this, it was just a matter of, well, there's probably, there was probably some gray area with, you know, one over the other in there. Eh, Let's just, you know, we're trying to make money on this. So let's not even risk it and just, you know, slap something else in there. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's DVD release, you know, who gives a shit basically I, I'm assuming is, is their thought process. Cause a, a lot of these, these studios, especially horror movies, they don't care about them. They're vehicles to make money, yeah. you know? So, so that, that's, uh, unfortunately, or and sometimes it's a good thing because they're not looking at it. They're not, you know, head in the sand with it. So sometimes studio decisions are a good thing. Um, but I think that's all that was. I almost wonder if it was a complete oversight. It wasn't even something people didn't even realize. You know, I that's the only thing I could think of. You know, which makes me, I would never get rid of my DVD for that reason. I love, you know, sometimes I'll watch that DVD just because I kind of like that score. You know, it's different. It still works in my opinion. I, I do love the original, the, excuse me, I do love the, the, the score that's meant for the movie as well but uh, i go back and forth um but a few more things i want to talk about here's a quote from Marsha, who was jesse's older sister who might be my favorite character from this movie i just love the older sister i think she's so she was so pretty in that movie and uh she's a badass nicely oh man i love that scene (laughs) Uh, this was what Marsha thought about the film after it came out um I thought the film got a lot of flack for being so... I think our film got a lot of flack for being so silly, but I thought it was necessary because they had cast Tommy and Jimmy as different characters who shared the same fate. It had to be comic because of that. I think that the effects by Kenny Myers made the horror part of the film amazing, and I love that the zombies were kind of stupid rather than just scary, which I would assume if zombies were ever real for some bizarre reason, they probably would be dumb. Yeah, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's, they're barely functioning, you know. You know. Um, I mean, these ones run, at least, but... You know, I mean, more often than not, zombies are just kind of singularly focused, and you know, they're not like, well, I won't, I won't eat the kid. Well, that's, that's, you know, they don't have that thought process. So, I, I think you're right. Yeah, the film. Uh, let's see. I still cover my eyes when they cut to the worm woman. Mm-hmm. The film ended up being very much, excuse me, as I had envisioned it would be. I was pleased with how it turned out, and I, f- I felt that Ken got the comic horror tone just right. 
Uh, I do too. I really do. Uh, but here's Ken on the the finishing touches of the movie. Here's a here's a couple things. Uh, Ken said it was really weird because they tested the film to death, and the usual procedure in L.A. they take the film outside of Los Angeles media market, which means you've got to get out beyond the range of the local television stations, because what they're doing is they're testing the film and they're testing the campaign. So he tested the film up in San Joaquin Valley. Bakersfield and went down to San Diego and I think we went to Arizona and it went through an extensive period of testing which was great because I was able to figure out what worked and what didn't with an audience in terms of where the laughs fell the audience ratings were high enough for Laura Mar to go ahead with a full up national release unfortunately they never clearly decided to go horror or to go comedy in the campaign my take on it was that you can mix horror and comedy but you cannot let the audience know this in advance people who like comedy don't generally like horror and the horror crowd want their gore usda organic pretty funny from ken (laughs) but once you get them into the theater it's another story what basically ken is saying is once you get them into the theater that's the only goal don't care if they like the movie because then we got we already got their money well you got their money but i mean then it's it's Again, you know, you, they've you've made a decision one way or another. You're getting one of those audiences. I, yeah. as with looking at some of my favorite movies, it's odd to say, but I'm not really big on horror comedy. Um, like Shaun of the Dead to me is one of the worst things I've ever seen. You know, I mean, I love this movie. I love the original. I, I love Night of the Creeps. You know, but it's hard true, to get it. It's hard it's, to get it right. It's man. tough to get it right. Exactly. Um, and so, like for me, it's like even someone that that is a big comedy fan, a big horror fan. I don't. That's not appealing. You go one way or the other with it. Oh, that's a funny movie about zombies. I'm in. Or it's a shit fucking balls of the wall zombie movie. I'm in. Yeah. But you know, and just to bring up, you brought up Lorimar. Um, I know Lorimar is like the production house for like Full House. Uh huh. And just come with some of those late 80s, early 90s sitcoms. Um, and this very much seems like something that could very well be like a Lorimar TV movie, um, tonally, you know, like this kind of this would almost fit in on like uh, uh, TGF Friday, you know, uh, which is TGIF yeah. ABC programming. Which is probably by why Lorimar was high on. I mean, I'm, I would assume that's why they like the pitch for this and uh, why they went with it. You know, here's something from Dana. And after this, we're going to talk about the uh, we're going to we're going to get the Brian Peck conversation going. Yeah, because I I know that the people want to hear this. And I felt so bad that I I didn't get to it. The last one. So Dana Ashbrook, who was the um, satellite installation technician in Return of the Living Dead Part 2. Actually, was it satellite or just cable? I think it was just cable. (laughs) Just cable. I hear I'm, I'm giving him too much. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but Dana Ashbrook, who uh, Dana was great. Uh, he talks about uh, here's a little quote from Dana, just so we can get some context from him. Uh, not sure why <laughs> he goes, not sure why this movie is considered a classic. Uh, I think it shares its place among the living deads, deads, but it seemed to not have any edge compared to the others. It was my first movie, so I will always have a special place in my heart. I loved working on it, and I will always have great memories of those two months. The people, Brian Peck. Uh, Tom, Jimmy, Phil, Sue, and Doug Benson, we uh were what made the movie so special and a hell of a lot of fun. 
And really quick, Marsha, uh, which was Jesse's older sister, she says, I liked the film when I saw it. I thought it was funny, and the special effects and makeup were great. I'm not really a horror film person, but I enjoyed it. I have a 15-year-old son who just watched it for the first time, and he thought it was one of the best movies he's ever seen. He also said, wow. Mom, you rocked in it, which made me smile. That's kick-ass. Yeah. Um, so let's get to it. So uh, one of the moments in this film, uh, which I do love the moment in the film, at the very end, uh, once we learn that electricity, oddly enough, is what kills the zombies, uh, at the very end, we're treated to a Brian Peck performed Michael Jackson zombie where he does his thriller dance and gets electrocuted and dies. I do love that moment in the film. Yeah. You know, what the hell? It's perfect way to, a perfect way to end it. When I, when I first saw the film, I was kind of like stunned because even... Uh, even as a 19, 20 year old kid watching the film for the first time when I did, I just knew I was like, something tells me Michael Jackson didn't sign off on this. Yeah. <laughs> like just knowing what the film was, was and everything. Uh, but I love it. Uh, I'm assuming, I'm assuming, I mean, what's your take on the finale? Are, are you, are you okay uh, with the electricity thing? I mean, it's a little odd I, to I, me. I mean, it's, you know, it's as I guess valid as any other kind of. Well, this is how you do it, you know. It, it it's a good setup, you know, that they kind of lead them to the place. And I, I don't necessarily think that the, the shit they did to kind of get the electricity flowing works in real life. But again, it's a movie. <laughs> it's not so outrageous that you can't suspend disbelief, right? So I, I like it, and the Michael Jackson thing is funny. I, as long as I can remember, I've been a Michael Jackson fan, so. It's, it's, oh, that's cool. You know, a little sweet, you know, and perfectly in line with the tone of the movie. So, well, speaking of touching kids, oh, Jesus. <laughs> um, Brian Peck, I guess we'll just get into it and we'll try not to, after this, we're going to move on to part three. Um, so Brian Peck was involved brian peck played multiple zombies in return of living dead part two because kenny decided to have a crew uh, a, a core group of actors to do the main zombie work that you would see close up uh, nice shots on screen so brian peck was the leader of this crew and he was throughout the movie and, and certain clips and he played the michael jackson zombie but brian peck um done a, has done has done some bad things um, but what I learned about this from, interestingly enough, did you watch the YouTube video like the Dan Schneider? I've I've gone down that rabbit hole a couple of times. Um, I've seen different videos. I don't know if I've seen any kind of like definitive, like you know, hour long kind of expose kind I, of thing. You know, and, and unfortunately, but just. <clears throat> You know, with the power that Hollywood has, anything like that is just kind of compiled by people, as somebody or several somebody's. You know, that, that the media can easily just go, ah, "Some crackpot, you're crazy." You know, even with legitimate evidence, it's it's disheartening for sure. Um, yeah, Dan's a disgusting person, a vile individual. Um, Anyway. Which I, yeah, I guess the reason I, for you listening, people, the reason I bring up Dan Schneider was because Brian Peck would work for Nickelodeon for a yeah. number of years with Dan Schneider. And Dan Schneider, if you're around our age, produced 
it's always these crazy bastards that have like the most creative minds. I mean, I mean, it's just the truth. Mm-hmm. Dan Schneider created so many great Nickelodeon shows that we loved and growing up. If if you guys recall the movie Good Burger, he's the fat manager of Good Burger in the movie. I'm pretty sure. Positive, that's him. Actually, I mean, I don't. Um. <laughs> so let's just get so some... you can get a just so you can get a look at him. Yeah. Um, He's repugnant. He's a foot fetishist. Like his, his whole Twitter, I, I don't know. I think it's probably been suspended at this point. There was a, a time where his entire Twitter was like, hey, kids, send pictures of your feet dressed up like Santa, whatever the fuck, you know, Santa Claus. And the winner will get a retweet or just like real creepy shit like that. Just give me all your feet pics, kids. Yeah, he was obsessed you know. with feet. Um and I'm trying to I'm trying to find an article that way I can just get the facts right. I got one. Uh exclusive. So basically Dan Schneider finally got taken out off of Nickelodeon. Never got in trouble, but you know, kid actors were coming out saying this dude's no. disgusting. This dude's a sick it, freak. One of the big rumors is that uh Britney Spears sister Jamie got Lynn. pregnant. Jamie Lynn Spears got pregnant on the set of not on the set, but while she was filming Zoe 101. 101. And the big rumor is that that's Schneider's kid. <clears throat> so, you know, she was, what, 15, 16 tops then, you know, and just kind of went away for years. So now we got to. Yeah. And s- s- basically, another thing I was in this documentary about, this is where Brian Peck starts coming. So Brian Peck was – uh, a child talent scout, talent agent, talent whatever. He worked talent, on the shows. And, and, yeah, um, acting teacher. And he and he was in, yeah. So he was involved of being around all these kids, and the rumor mill was coming out about him. Brian Peck got sixteen months in prison. Uh, he he. I don't remember the actress or the the young uh, female actor or male. I forget if it was male or female. I think Brian is gay which has nothing to do with it it yes. doesn't matter if you get what we're talking about under age um so i can't remember but my point is i can't remember if it was male or female but he went to prison for 16 months and uh i don't know if brian was able to keep this under wraps in the public well it seems like none of the cast members of, of return including kenny myers mention it or act like it's a thing maybe it's just they're good friends and kenny's like you know i don't know i just wonder about that because that is the shocking thing once i discovered all this that all this had happened with this guy because initially like when he talks about the movie on the the like the first tv like the second dvd release he's you know affable likable guy so i like you know brian's cool he's a cool guy he loves the movie which that's awesome and then you read all this shit and heartbreaks. And you're like, oh, God. But even past that, you know, like within even the last four, five, six years, they all still kind of get conventions. They're all chummy and, you know, arms on the shoulders and, oh, it's good to catch up, and blah, blah, blah. And it's crazy to me. Because, like, it's not like it was a statutory thing where, you know, he's, whatever it's you know still creepy but she's 16 17 years old or something or he they're kids they're like 
12, 13 tops. And some of the, the convictions is eight charge, eight counts of sexual abuse, including abuse by anesthesia or controlled substance. Jesus. Like that's reprehensible. It's not like a accidental or, you know, no, like that's, just... that's that there was conviction in his actions. You know, there's, yeah. I can give a little bit of information about this, and then we'll move on. Uh, here was an article from 2015. Uh, the the uh, headline is exclusive. Pedophile X-Men actor, which I'm assuming Brian Peck was in X-Men. I, I would know. Um, pedophile X-Men actor convicted of sexually abusing Nickelodeon child star is still working with underage kids. That's That was the kicker. Okay, that yeah. was the thing. Uh, Brian Peck served 16 months in prison after admitting to two counts of abusing a Nickelodeon child actor. He was charged with eight counts of sexual abuse, including abuse by anesthesia or controlled substance, like you said. The actor, 54, this was in 2015, so now he's uh, about to be 60, yeah, yeah. was in two X-Men movies and all three Return of Living Dead movies and is now featured in controversial documentary on pedophile abuse in Hollywood. Since release from prison, he has been a dialogue coach, worked on Disney series, and played teacher, and claims to be friends of Charlie Sheen. That like, I, I like how they add the Charlie Sheen thing in there. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, I think the even bigger deal than Charlie Sheen is that, as you mentioned, the X Men actor um, Brian Singer was the producer on that, I think. And Brian Singer is one of like the big kind of kingpins that it's often kind of pointed to when they talk oh, about man. sexual abuse of, of the children in Hollywood. Dude, um, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of probably just there's dark. so many, just like it, it's, you know, this ain't the, really the place for it, but there's the well, way we're here now. Is, yeah. So. I mean, we'll, we'll get it. I'm just saying there's a much bigger conversation to be had. You know? Oh man. Um, and it, it's, you know, F Corey Feldman's, one of the loudest guys, but he's such a yeah. wild guy. Nobody will listen to him, yeah. but mm -hmm. you know, but here's a little bit more. He was only banned with direct contact for, for, with children. So he's able to work on children's series on sets with underage actors tracked down by daily mail online. He refused to comment on his 2004 conviction, but not for profit says he shows why laws need to be changed. Well, here's a few things added about this. As he, sh this is when they they found him out and about on the streets of Hollywood. He, you know, I guess somebody finally, the, the people started digging into this shit, and they started finding out about it. As he strolls through Hollywood, and this is in 2015, X Men and Living Dead actor Brian Peck doesn't seem to have a care in the world. A regular at horror conventions, Peck has a lengthy and continue continuing Hollywood career and claims a friendship with Charlie Sheen, but in fact, Peck is a convicted child sex offender who used his movie industry role to abuse a Nickelodeon star and who astonishingly is not banned from working with children. Dubbed the Hollywood doesn't want, dubbed the Hollywood wants you, doesn't want you to see an open secret tells the story of five victims who said they were molested as young boys trying to make it in the film business. Peck is featured in this film, but daily mail has obtained full details on the charges that were leveled against him. Perhaps most disturbingly, he is only prohibited from direct contact with children, not from being uh, 
not from being part on productions in which children are acting, meaning that since being convicted, he has worked on a Disney show and a horror movie set in a high school. He played a sex head teacher, yeah. according okay. to the movie's credits. Peck 54 was convicted in 2004. Uh, he was convicted of a lewd act against a child and oral copulation of a person under 16. I hate to ask, but what does that mean? That's basically a blowjob. Oral <clears throat> copulation. Okay. In court now document. I'm glad they spare you the details of. You know. yeah. uh, in court documents obtained by Daily Mail Online, the victim is only named as John Doe to protect his identity. Well, good deal. The child did not want his identity revealed for fear of having a negative effect on his career. Peck has been coaching the youngster and acting at his home with the offenses where the offenses happened and was only arrested after the budding actor's parents reported him to the police. The document shows Peck was originally charged with 11 counts, including lewd act upon a child, sodomy of a person under 16, attempted sodomy of a person under 16, sexual penetration by foreign object, Four counts of oral copulation of a person under 16. Oral copulation by anesthesia or controlled substance. What the fuck? Sending harmful matter and using a minor for sex acts. In the end, he pleaded no contest to two counts. Lewd act against a child and oral copulation. And the court found him guilty of both. The remaining counts were dismissed. What the? And they actually have their this website, dailymail.co.uk, actually has the uh, legal documentation on all this stuff. Um, but basically these people found him out, out and about and they went up to him and they said, do you have any comment on your, you know, your 2004 charge? And he's like, no, I don't have anything to say about it. But dude, it's just like he, I, I don't know what to say. Look, I, I know that me, n- neither me or you are the type of guys that are like cancel people, bury them. Yeah. I'm just more so shocked that he's been able to do. This isn't saying a yucky word, you know, or, or uh, giving it, you know, an unpopular opinion. This is just like one of the worst things you can do, you know, like uh, it's, you know, again, it's, it's fucking how, how could you ever in good conscience give this guy a job again? You know, mind blowing like, at least not in, in the same fucking field with, with with the same people that he you know he, here's my against, here's know? my guess so she want to know why he gets a job back well if you guys hey yeah i was gonna say well if you guys don't give me my job back and let me go back to work i'm i'm outing everybody yeah. i mean that's probably a lot of it and also a lot of them don't really give a shit because they're doing the same things yeah you know um, disgusting it's, it's, Jesus Christ to say say the least so yeah but basically guys Brian Peck is uh, it's not going to be Times person of the year (laughs) no no Elon Musk what really gets me was the um, lewd act with anesthesia like he's drugging kids and God knows what he's doing that is disgusting Mm -hmm. I mean Jesus Christ man that's almost like I mean, killing somebody is worse, but like, dude, just kill me than do that to yeah. me for God's sake. And, and that's, I guess, I think that's the argument is like, is is killing them worse? I mean, you know, to kill a kid, as much as I love when kids die in horror movies, it's a fucking movie at the end of the day, <laughs> right? You know, to kill a kid is awful, 
but to ruin them and make them continue on with that fucking awful memory and that, that trauma might be worse. Oh man. Well, let's, let's, uh, but let's put Brian Peck to bed. Um, we're going to move on. Let's, let's start this out right here with a, uh, with an opening paragraph for return of living dead three. Four years would pass before serious consideration would be given to the possibility of another Return of the Living Dead movie. In that time, the horror genre had changed. Shamelessly derivative and profitable slasher sequels had begun to dwindle, making way for such critically acclaimed psychological thrillers such as Silence of the Lambs. And the the zombie genre was showing signs of dying out once again. Whilst Kiwi filmmaker Peter Jackson was set to shock audiences with his splatter flick Brain Dead, released under the title Dead Alive in the United States, and Sam Raimi was prepping to bring his Evil Dead franchise to a conclusion with the tongue-in-cheek shenanigans of Army of Darkness, none other than Tom Savini was given the opportunity to direct a Night of the Living Dead remake, a movie that had missed a chance, that he missed a chance to work on 20 years earlier. Um, It goes on to talk about, you know, prepping, Tom Fox finally thinking maybe now is the right time getting a deal, which I think he got to deal with Trimark. It's funny, you know, he would wait out the options more or less to do another one or whatever with a company. And, you know, he would find another place to put out another movie. So that's why I think all the first three return of living deads. I don't remember about the last two, but like you said, they, <laughs> they don't exist. They don't exist to the point where the right, I believe the rights, something like this, the rights to them were just available for eBay for a pretty low amount. <laughs> Yeah, you're probably close to right right there, man. Uh, but Return of Living Dead Part 3, let's just get personal. Um, I don't like this one more than Part 2, but I'm very happy to... Ad- I mean, I, I say very happy. I'm very more than... Well, I'm more than happy to admit that I, uh, I'm probably in the minority in that. It seems like the majority of people I know that are fans of this film usually say, oh, I like 3 more than 2. I love yeah. 3. I just really love two as well, so, but I don't, I don't know that I would say I love three. I like it. It's good. You know, I, I'm not like embarrassed of it, but it's a pretty clear step down from two um, in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. The production seems to be a little bit more modest. The set design, the sets are, are modest. The money is modest but i like brian usna a lot yes. you know i think he's great so to give a little bit of context on brian brian usna came from the i think he was working big time with uh stuart gordon producing a lot of his films he's coming from the empire pictures world um and i don't know that brian had been in hollywood too terribly long at that point and i don't know that this was the first I believe, movie i believe he directed society oh man talk about a yeah. wild ass movie there's um effects similarities in the two um, for sure. <clears throat> oh yeah. Uh, let's see. Right here, Brian used. Now here's a quote from him. Let's see. Okay, this is from David uh, Trip Trippet, the executive in charge of production on Part Three. The idea to produce the picture was brought to us by a foreign sales agent and executive producer, Larry Myers. I knew Larry from my acquisition duties, and he had worked at New World with our president at Trimark, Roger Berlage. Uh, Roger liked the idea that this was part of a franchise, and he put me in charge of it. 
make it happen, he told me, so I went to work. I was a fan of the first one. I don't recall when I saw the second one. I have a love for that kind of film. I did work on the cult film Street Trash, which is fucking love Street Trash. And naturally, I was never the same afterward. My gut was that once Brian was on board, he would make this more twisted and not focus too much with the one-liners like more brains or send more cops. Brian agreed and wanted to make this with his own stamp on it. There was some concern over how twisted to go so as to not alienate the fans on previous films. Um, and here's a little bit more to that. And we're talking about Brian Youth, not Brian Peck, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Uh, so when Brian came on board to do the film, he uh, basically was going to see, he, he wanted to make his own film. And that was kind of the thing he wanted to do. He didn't want to repeat part two, which I don't think the people that were involved with putting it together wanted that either. But this is what Brian said. When I asked Trimark what the requirements were for the sequel, whether it should be comedic, etc., they said, no, I could do whatever I wanted, but I must include brain eating. That doesn't mean they weren't very engaged. They were very engaged. We worked closely with them on the script, budget, casting, etc., and I never remembered any creative or practical disagreements. They wanted to use James Karen in a role, but he wasn't available, and they suggested a number of other key production personnel that we did use, for example, editor Chris Roth, and director of photography, Jerry Lively. The working relationship with Dave Trippett and Trimark was very smooth and collaborative. My first thought about the story that came was when I first interviewed uh, Joel about the project. I forgot who Joel was in here. Anyway, uh, I thought, shit, I lost my spot. Since there has been so many zombie movies already... Uh, that's what I thought about it then. That's what I think about it now. Zombie films have almost become new westerns. I thought that a way to give a new perspective would be to, would be to make a protagonist zombie. I had already begun to try that with Bride of Reanimator, and in retrospect, regretted bringing the bride to life. So later in the movie, she was a fantastic character. Her angst, poignancy, and, hu- and inhumanity were fascinating. So with Return 3, I thought to give a character like her the whole movie. So that was the initial idea for Return of Living Dead 3. Uh, it is is important to note that Brian Peck. Well, I don't think Brian Peck had committed. Well, I say he hadn't committed any crimes at this point. Honestly, there's no telling what the hell Brian uh, Peck was doing have, at this point. You have no idea, um, and he is in this movie too. Uh, He's one of the uh, ballistic technicians. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is one of my favorites. Uh, one of favorite one of my favorite parts of the movie, which we're gonna get there because there is an hel- there is a hilarious story about the actor there. Oh. Uh, here's one more thing from Brian, then we'll get a little bit more personal. Even though Return 3 was legally the second sequel to Return of Living Dead as a horror film, I felt like there was also a blood relation to Night of the Living Dead, and I wanted to take uh, and I wanted to place my story into a world which would not contradict either. I loved how Abandon solved the problem of linking Return to Night, and yet in a completely original direction. The prologue in which James Karen refers to Night of the Living Dead as fictionalized versions of true events was brilliant. It was funny as well as as giving license to create a new living dead mythology, one based on gas bringing the dead back to life. Also, in O'Bannon's version, even body parts could be reanimated. Killing the brain did not kill the ghoul. Even though the living dead and not a living dead did not infect the living through saliva, in Dawn of the Dead, that became the case. Return made the living dead brains hungry zombies, not just flesh-hungry cannibals. Uh, which I think we talked about this last time. Return of the Living Dead really modernized zombies the way we kind of know it today, more than anything. Yeah, I would say just as, if not more, than Romero's movies. Because when, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of binging that uh, show 
eye zombie and it's all zombies eat brains and that's it they don't care about any other part of the body um the simpsons trios of horror uh, dial z for zombies um short or whatever you want to call it uh it's all brains they're worried about brains and, and they do chew on you know that but that's the simpsons you know um i think you'd, it, once uh, they started showing up in commercials, brains, you know, oh, zombies, you know, they moan for brains. That's, that that became what it was. And that wasn't a thing before uh, Return. Just yep. the same way that zombies didn't eat flesh before night. You know, zombies yep. were voodoo creations before that. That's true. All right, so let's get personal. Return to Living Ed Part 3. When was the first time? Well, you, you talked about this earlier. You saw Part 3 basically right after part two, which was yeah. your first one you saw initial thoughts on part three. Uh, it's lesser. It was, you know, it was, it was more serious. So it was a little less fun. Um, you know, the, the, the lead, uh, this one, I'm not nearly as like, kind of like it, it's, it's not nearly steeped in my brain as much as the other two. So the character names, I don't remember like any hardly. Um, but, but the main guy, he was a cool, you know, early nineties dude. So I was, Oh, I like him. You know, uh, the drummer riding the bicycle, weather jacket kind of in, in, uh, you know, Mindy Clark is gorgeous. I've, and Julie and Kurt are the stars of the film. That's yes. their character's name. Yes. J Trevor Edmond and, and Melinda. Yeah. Melinda Clark. Uh, what a beautiful young woman, which is probably one of the reasons people love, uh, yeah. Mitty, but she's right here in front of me. I had to for this when I was doing this podcast. Like, let me put my part three poster up because it'll give me some. <laughs> she's lovely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you like where the story goes? This has been dubbed the Romeo and Juliet zombie mm-hmm. film. I think it's cool. Yeah, I, I definitely like it. It's it's very nineties. Um, not that that's a bad thing. Um, as a kid, it was. I've talked about this a lot. As a kid, I feel like most kids are this way. Like. All movies are just a miracle that they happen. Everything is just as good as everything. You know, like, as a kid, there's no difference between, like, uh, Seven with with Brad Pitt and Children of the Living Dead. You know, like, (laughs) you know, as you get older, you realize, oh, oh, God, they're they're so different. This is so bad. Um, Or vice versa. And so it, it was great. I didn't mind the effects were. They're not good at all in this movie. I mean, just to touch on that now, that's a real sticking point to me. Um, but yeah, it's a fun little movie. And it, it, it kind of goes quick. It's a quick movie, too. Um, yeah, we're moving around. We've got scenes at the, at the uh, ballistics military base. We're going to gas stations. We're driving around. We're on dirt bikes. Um, um, and it's another one of those things. I know Piz... Uh, Bizal talks about how kind of like uh, uh, Friday part eight is kind of, you know, that's the end of the weekend, you know, like part th- uh, return three is like, that was the end of the Saturday night. That's all right. We'll watch this and then we'll, we'll hit the hay. It's so, so funny. You mentioned that. I, I know for a fact, I remember this vividly. My first time watching return living dead part three. Do you remember when Walmart, I did a video about this years ago and uh, I did a video called, when uh remember when walmart used to sell cult horror films mm-hmm. and it was those eight movie pack of dvds yeah. and it was all movies like slaughter high and my best friend is a vampire well I, and i still have them it's somewhere again buried deep in this horror room it was an eight movie pack and 
in there was Return to Living Dead 3. And that was the first time I watched this movie. Now, I'm sure that the picture quality on that thing is so bad because it's like three movies to a disc. But I remember watching part three and being so hesitant to want to watch it. I don't know why I, I like the artwork, but it, for something was telling me this is going to suck. This is going to suck. And I would put it off. But I remember I eventually watched it and I remember liking it. I remember thinking it was good. One thing I'll say about two and three is I do think that there are movies that they just you, you got to revisit them. And I think you'll start to appreciate things more and appreciate things more. And th- there are movies that I just want that meant they would always once I would see them. They may not have been movies that stuck up my mind to be like, oh, my God, this was amazing. But they would be movies that I would say, I want to revisit that again, especially, you know, I would want to revisit that one again. So three would be one that I would be like, this one was, you know, I like this one. Let me watch it again. You know, you know, let me watch again. I can watch this movie a bunch. It's not a movie I can watch once and be like, "Okay, time to move on, which is one of the beauty of of these three movies, quite frankly, is they're so great to revisit. But uh, I remember, you know, not to sound cliche, but the first time seeing Mindy Clark in this movie, I mean, she just is she come that camera is in love with her. Uh, and, and so is the audience. I mean, she was just she may in in the hands of a lesser performer or basically almost anybody else. This movie fails, in my opinion, because J. Yeah. Trevor Edmund, I like Kurt, but let's be honest. Who's on the poster? She's on the poster right. of that movie for a reason. Uh, yeah, I mean, he could be replaced with anybody. You know, and as long as, long as it, it's not like you or I staring straight into cameras reading their lines, you know, yeah, it's going to be fine. You're not losing or gaining too much by keeping or switching him out. Um, they, they do a good job, Brian, or Yuzna uh, does, with kind of, not that they make her dumpy or anything at the beginning, but she's not like otherworldly attractive in the beginning. But as that kind of reveal after she starts, you know, jamming shards of glass and shit into her, it's just like it's they it, they they kind of just reveal her, and it's just like oh, it's a man. work of art, you know. It's and oh, that's that's saying something because if you if you if you've watched anything she's done out of character off of that movie, she's stunning. Um, I think oh yeah, still so. You know, um, does she do conventions still? I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure. I, I would have. I imagine she at least once in a while. Yeah. So let's talk about some standout scenes in this movie. Um, for, for me, obviously, the big one is uh, when Julie is looking for some excitement, and she convinces Kurt to take them up to the military base that his father works at, and you can tell Kurt is, uh, you know, he's he's totally in love with this chick. And he's coming into his manhood. And I know that at this time, Kurt is uh, told by his father, hey, we're going to be packing up soon. Got to go, blah, blah, blah. So he's bummed out. Actually, this happens after this scene. And this yeah. is the, this scene actually is the catalyst for that. So, Julie, it, go ahead. It's kind of funny, I think, after he tells he tells him that he's, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to run away. We're going to Seattle. You know, which which is really a sign of how early 90s it was. Like Seattle was like the mecca. For, yeah, Pearl Jam and Nirvana for, country. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they make their way up to the, uh, military base. And so Julie wants to just get some excitement in her life. She's a, she don't, Julie is not the type of girl to, uh, I couldn't be with Julie cause I'm a homebody <laughs> and Julie wants, to, I could tell Julie wants to be up and at them. She wants to go places. 
you know so we we, we uh this is one thing i do like about return of living dead 3 a lot i love the mythology of the 245 trucks and, and i like that this movie tried to you know i thought that was a nice touch um and i like i i and you know i hate to credit brian peck but i do know that he was one of the people that came up with an initial not script by anything just a just an idea and he was like why don't we why don't we do something where we're trying to figure out what this chemical is and what it does and how to harness its power and how to figure out what to do with it and how to get the right leveling of how to bring somebody back almost kind of like reanimator in, in a sense like what's the right concoction if you will but you know we're trying to figure out how to use this chemical so there's this I would say, you know, not the famous scene because the famous scene is at the end, but the second famous scene in this film, we uh, see this experiment about to go, about to go down, and there's this old skinny man <laughs> that we learn was a legitimate homeless man, yeah. an old homeless grandpa, if you will. You know, uh, I don't think he spoke English. I want to say they said he was like argentinian or something I, I might just be like conflating that with something else entirely but i feel like that's true i i um, I, I think i have something in here ab about it i'll have to i'll have to look it up i i think i remember saying that uh i think it was actually brian peck who actually said something about it but he was like you know when we got this guy in he was odd he didn't really speak fluently he would speak in English, but he would kind of just kind of say words every now and again. And he was very whatever. It's almost like they they almost made it sound like he just like he was cognitive enough to know that he was doing something and he was in front of a camera. But like almost like, like he didn't care. Yeah. Like he was just like, OK, you know, which but he was a homeless man. <laughs> I, I, you know, like that, that takes a toll on the brain after a long time. I mean, if he's been, he'd been out there a, a while, it, uh, you know, it tends to happen. I, and I wonder, I wonder how they go about this. I mean, Brian news, sees a homeless man and he's like, I need this guy for my movie. Okay. Cause there's no, this probably goes into, you know, we don't have to put too much money into making them look dead. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> he's on death's door as it is. Um, another thing is funny. They talk about how he, he would fall out of that little cod piece they had on him. Like, I think, and I think the thing was like you're just a little too big for the cod piece, and you just kind of, you know, oops. And his his <laughs> dick and balls, his dick and balls would slot out of his little man thong, out of yeah. his, uh, you know, which is great. But the scene is, I love the scene uh, when we we think things are handled. He pops up, he's acting crazy, and then the old zombie man drops back down, and as soon as everybody's laying low they're breaking their sets down getting ready to leave he comes back and he he raises hell and he infects and kills one of the guys in the ballistics room well this does not go well for uh kurt's dad and he basically gets transferred again yeah um and this would cause a rift between him and his his son and him and melinda clark or julie they get on the dirt bike and they're like we're not leaving anywhere He's driving like a bat out of hell. Melinda is trying to basically grope him while he's driving his motorcycle, which isn't the worst problem to have. But unfortunately, this causes him to wreck and Melinda dies. Yeah. So what does he way, do? <laughs> Go ahead. The way Sorry. they kill her, it's like, it's no blood, but it's kind of gruesome because she just, she flies off the bike and just like yeah, just smack into a telephone pole. Like, Yeah, it's a, it, I like the way they did that. That scene was done pretty well. 
Um, so he's like, well, shit, man, I, this is my woman. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm just bailing on my dad for this. So we got to bring her back. Yeah. So he, he trioxins her up and, uh, this is the, basically the crux of the movie. She's slowly going to turn into a zombie, which I can buy that, I guess, you know, if she hasn't been dead that long, you know, I can buy the, the, the pseudoscience, if you yeah. will, of that. And it's kind of unintentionally. There's a parallel to Pet Cemetery, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, cause, cause Lewis, you know, he brings Gage back and then finds out Gage killed, his wife and he said, well, she hasn't been dead that long. I could bring, you know, I could bring her back and she'll be normal. You know, I like, I get like Gage sit too long. That's why he turned, but not that, you know, Kurt had any, any notion of really, you know, what was supposed to happen, but I mean, maybe he assumed that the tall homeless zombie, uh, you know, was just dead a long time or something. Um, another just dumb kind of thing about that, homeless zombie is that my buddy one of the first bands he played in um there was a sound guy in buffalo his name is joe tall just shout him out i don't know if he's still alive he was dead ringer for this guy just a little cleaned up because he lived inside but um it's just every time i saw him i just fucking laugh you know cool guy best sound guy for for my money in buffalo at the time 10 years you know 10 years ago at this point but um yeah so like this movie all like would frequently just kind of pop into my mind just because I'd see him all the time. <laughs> oh, that's great. Right, here's a quote from uh, Melinda Clark on getting the role. Uh, when I first heard about this, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it, but then I read the script, which was penned by John Penny, who seems like a great dude. especially if you watch the documentary, uh, love from beyond the grave. I keep wanting to say that's the name of it. It's on YouTube as well. <laughs> I'm in the ballpark of them. That's not it, but yeah. I'm sure that's it. But when I read the script, I was really surprised. I liked the challenge. Julie's rebellious teenage. Julie's Julie's a rebellious teenager from a dysfunctional family, and the only thing she has is her boyfriend. So they're really playing out that strange Romeo and Juliet, Sid and Nancy type relationship. She turns into a zombie, but she's not just a bad ghoul walking in, around moaning. She then says. Her spirit is intact, and at times she struggles with the fact that she's in danger of attacking her boyfriend, which I think was just the right way to go. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, I, I remember my first time watching the film after she dies and he she gets um, brought back with the trioxin. I was I was so ready to hate the movie at that point. I was like, okay, this is gonna really let me down because she's gonna be bumbling and mumbling, and and they didn't do that. Yeah. So, I mean, the movie carried, and, I, and one of my favorite scenes in the movie, it's to me, it's so fucking hilarious, is when she's like, I'm hungry, I need to eat. So they go into the gas station, yeah. and the broad starts eating Debbie cakes and those little pink fuzzy, <laughs> wuzzy <laughs> cakes. Snowballs. Yeah, snowballs, just right in the aisle. And he's like, Julie, come calm down, Julie. I mean, she's yeah. just attacking him. So I, I don't know if this is because I've always just been fat. But I, I feel that that hunger. So I, I don't know if it's like the script is done, the acting's well done, and I feel her hunger, but or if it's just me being, you know, fat pile of garbage. But I, you know, I, I thought that worked well. How funny is that? Uh, so they're gonna piss off the uh, Latino group playing the arcade in the gas station. Uh, I, I forget. It's been a while since I've seen part three, but I remember there there a chase scene ensues. In, in not long after this, and I think they held the uh, 
the cashier of the gas station hostage, right? So they put him in the van yeah. <laughs> and they start driving the van and he's in the back of the van and the cops are chasing him. Uh, don't think he like, doesn't, doesn't he kick the doors of the back of the van wide open and he's waving to the cops like, help me. And then the cops just shoot him. Yeah. 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 Right in the head. <laughs> but uh, that was a fun scene. The, the, the gas station scene is, is so memorable to me. Uh, the movie would ensue. There's back and forth. And then we get to the end where, you know, we get a character that I love. The river man. Yeah. <laughs> I love the river man. Uh, one of my favorite moments is when he's, it's like, he's like a, you know, that could have been a Don Calfer role right there, to be honest with you. Like oh, yeah. really bizarre, you know, maybe that was a missed opportunity, but actually I have a quote from Don Calfa about return of living dead three. If you want me to read it, yeah. here it is. Cause I didn't know anything about Don Calfa with this movie. He goes, I must tell you, I've got to get a copy of Return of the Living Dead 3 that my friend Brian Usna did. I did Necronomicon for him. He's a very intelligent man, very wonderful, very clever, and he just took it into another direction. I saw little pieces of it, and I liked what I saw, and I went, oh, I'm liking this. I just couldn't do part three. I had another situation, plus an emotional thing of my wife walking out with the kid, uh, and I just couldn't do it. I think Kent McCord did the part of something like that. So it seems like Brian, I mean, there's stuff before and I'm just kind of giving you the, the context. Brian used the, w- would have used Don Calfa. I think Brian was going to use uh, James Karen as well, but uh, Don Calfa at this point was having really bad personal problems, which was a shame because yeah. even though I wouldn't have put, but here, let me finish this. Let me finish this. And I'll go. Uh, I think Kent McCord did the part of something like that. It was the general. And I had very specific ideas on that part. And I said, I'd like this guy to be a bit of an invalid. And I think I had ideas for my hair or something. And I talked to him about it, but I just couldn't do it. So Don was going to want to be in this film, but it sounded like Don was going to go for more of a comedy role as well. Cause he wanted the, he wanted the, the, uh, the, the Kent McCord, you know, Lieutenant, in charge of the trioxin experiments to be bumbling or silly, which wasn't what the movie was, which in my mind, I thought he would have been a perfect river man. Don Calva. Yeah. I, yeah. Cause I think that role, you can play with that a little more. You can throw his crazy eyes. Yeah. yeah. But that's unfortunate. It would have been great to see Don Calva in here, but you know what? The movie is the movie. The cast is the cast. There's some good. There's some good performances in this movie. I think, like I said, uh, without uh, Mindy Clark in this, this movie wouldn't have worked. They had to find the perfect looking woman, figuratively and literally, quite frankly. But the she had that personality, man. I mean, it's amazing. This ca- the character that she created was so real. And uh, it didn't seem fake at all. I just think she's fantastic in this movie. I mean, and I think she's probably the reason why this movie has, I guess, more fans than two. You know, I I don't think there's any doubt about it. Yeah, you know, and and I, it's good work on her part. I think it's kind of uh, it's a similar, it's a parallel. I know I've done this a ton, but with her and uh, Lisa Wilcox. Um, in Nightmare 4, you know, apparently Lisa Wilcox is like 
loud kind of cheerleader type in real life. Yeah. They, you know, they, they made her that little mousy, quiet. Oh, I, you know, could, wouldn't say shit with a mouthful, as they say. Right. Um, you know, and, and it, so like to be able to, I don't think Mindy Clark necessarily is this, you know, badass, you know, balls of the wall, partying all the time kind of chick in real life. So in that way, it's like, it's playing, a, you know, it's actually, it's acting. It's legitimately right. doing something different than just, well, this is who I am. So to wrap this up, here's the last thing I want to talk about. I mean, when it comes to part three, you know, we talked about the special effects for part two. I think Kenny was more so hindered with the restrictions on mostly Tar tar Man, you know. Um, But part three, you know, it's interesting. You look at these pictures uh, for some of the work that was done in part three and these pictures look great, but you know, Sauce, I don't remember this uh, half zombie or this half skeleton zombie looking as good on the actual film. I mean, that was after he split. There was an image of here it is. Yeah, yeah. So this is the this is the Tar Man, if you will, of the movie, yeah. right? Um, and I just think it uh, it's good, but yeah, it's fine, and that's the. The word fine would not have been used to describe the effects on either of the, the preceding movies. The uh, the designs are not great. I'm not like just it's not even so much the the actual the pulling it off. It's the concept is off. I, I don't really I don't enjoy the the, the tarmen. You know, um, they, they're just so far off the mark of what they were. Um, that it just it's weird, and I get whatever. Time has passed, and maybe the the chemical has changed or whatever. You know, I mean, there's there's explanations that could have been just kind of throw you know throwaway lines or whatever, I guess. But um, honestly, outside of Mindy Clark and the the homeless zombie, most of these effects just don't hit for me. Yeah, they're 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 very they're just they, someone just looks so modest. Like I remember at the end, the river man gets his head sliced in half or something, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have that shine the way the first movie did. And I know that Brian said he used different effects houses to do this movie to save time, and I almost wonder if that uh, worked against them a little bit. Yeah, there's and, not real. There's yeah, I, I didn't know that, but to think about it, it's not like a a uniformity really with how things look. So I, I guess it's conceivable that, you know, the, the good was done by one place and then kind of the, the all the, the, the gang makeup uh, effects and just like, they're pretty awful. Yeah. I thought the old man looked Clarence looked pretty good, which was not, like, again, again, pretty modest, what they did to him. They just kind of, they kind of affected his skin tone because he's very thin and, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I like the, I, I, I don't hate the Tar Man zombie. It's just, uh, I think it needed a little more work. The hair yeah. looks really, the hair looks like something from a Ruby's mask on him. But once he splits and we get this design, I thought this was okay. Where we got like, you know, I think the the zombie splits and we get that yeah. half skull. That's better. And, and kind of what you said is that, that looks better than it does in that, in that picture than it does in the movie. You know, um, you know, but thankfully, you know, it, it seems like this movie 
didn't focus so much. I, I say it didn't focus so much on the special effects the way the previous ones did or the makeup effects where it really focused more on the story, which obviously was the right choice given the budgetary limitations. So, you know, I just, uh, I guess I just want to talk about that because, you know, I don't want people to just think, you know, I think these movies that I love so much are just they're everything's perfectly fine because it's not, you know, there are things that could have been done better. I found a quote about Clarence. This is from Brian Peck. Yes, he was in fact a homeless guy and honestly a tad odd. He seemed a bit off. He was extremely thin and when all made up, he was pretty disturbing to look at. The most wearing, the most disturbing thing, however, was that he was practically nude wearing only that little strange cup jockstrap thing that for whatever reason kept coming undone, allowing his penis to flop out for all to see. He probably liked it too. You son of a bitch. <laughs> to Clarence's credit, this didn't seem to upset him in the least. Since the cup fell open most often while we were strapping his arms up to the restraints, he was incapable of pulling the cup back uh, himself. So the poor wardrobe lady had to run in and gingerly re-snap the cup while desperately trying not to touch his penis. <laughs> this happened more times than I can tell you. Somewhere there is a tremendous amount. Somewhere there is a tremendous amount of footage of Clarence Epperson's genitalia. <laughs> and Peck has all of it. Here, here's a little bit of uh, what I was telling you about with the effects. My approach. This is from Brian Usenum. My approach to making the effects is that each shop has different strengths and specialties. On the main character effects and the key effects, I try to go with the best we can afford. On secondary effects, we will go with artists who have more ambition than credits. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Okay. And I think it shows. Yeah. And you know. I don't hold it against the film, but uh, I do think if we could have had more time and Brian would have been able to just, you know, get one effects house to do all the work, the film would just, uh, I mean, I would, I really would have not much to complain about at all, but. uh, And like, it's, it's not that it like ruins the movie, but it's, you know, if you're going to go make a list of pros and cons, it's definitely a con, you know, it, it definitely is a, sour note I guess of the movie but obviously one of our main uh, portions of the film that we love and I think I can show this because there's really not too much nudity is Melinda her final sequence Um, now in the documentary I think they described her outward appearance as some kind of subtlety of saying she was a cutter which would have made sense with her character in the film. And I think the way they described it was the same way. Some people who have the uh, depression and deal with the cutting stuff, her, her way of doing it in the film was she wanted, she was begging to feel pain. She couldn't at that point after she had died. So her outward appearance of being with the shards all in her, she was begging. She just wanted to feel something so bad. So that's why she, I mean, it's, it's beautifully, horrific the way i think it's described um it's a weird feeling when i see it i i tell myself should i feel happy right now or should i feel guilty right now that like i'm you know i've never seen anything like it till this day i'll tell you that i mean return of living dead i I mean there's a famous fangoria magazine that came out when the movie came out and it's her on the front cover of it all in her full excuse me in her full get up and uh i don't know man I just, <laughs> you know, it's beloved by horror fans. I'll tell you that. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, the story's definitely the 
the star, you know, like it's, it's tragic. You know, I, you said earlier, the Romeo and Juliet kind of thing. And, you know, it's very much that, I mean, you know, in the end, I mean, I hate to say, you know, spoilers cause it's 30 years old, but they're almost anyway. Um, you know, in the end, they, they both, they kind of die, you know, they, they end up dying together and there's, you you can kind of pull comparisons to Bride of Frankenstein in that regard. Absolutely. You know, we belong dead. Now, Sauce, we're going to start wrapping this up. This has been yeah. really fun. I could, I mean, I, I I don't know about you, but like I literally could talk about these movies oh, yeah. all fucking night. <laughs> now, in this book, again, I urge anybody to try to get it. Now, here is the section of Necropolis and Rave to the Grave. <laughs> I just want to read you this one thing. John Russo, executive producer of Children of the Living Dead. <laughs> the first sentence. <clears throat> I hate Children of the Living Dead. <laughs> Is it that what he says? I swear to God. <laughs> that's the first sentence. I'm going to read you this paragraph. John Russo, executive producer. I hate Children of the Living Dead. It's the worst film ever made. That's, this is a quote from this book. I worked with the screenwriter on five revisions, and finally the script was getting to be pretty good. I was supposed to have total creative control over the production, including the hiring and firing. But as soon as her, fa- but as soon as her father put her up to the production, including the, hi- excuse me, but as soon as her father put up the money, Karen L. Wolf, Joe Wolf was the executive, right? Who produced Nightmare on Elm Street? Went back to her original script and refused to change a word. So all of my work as a producer and as the person who got people such as Jerry Jurgley, Vince uh, Guastini, Bill Hensman, Tom, Debun- Tom Debunsky, and Tom Savini to come on board went down the drain. It was one of the worst experiences of my long career, and I hate being blamed for it. So, oh, who blames him for that? I mean, like, I, you got to think... I, I, well, I guess you just got to think, you know, people are ignorant. They, they, yeah. you know, not, not everybody is going to know that, you know, one of the producers put the, their daughter in charge of the movie yeah. and was like, yeah, do whatever you want, baby. You know, yeah. I mean, not to get too far into this, but this movie is fascinatingly bad. Um, and, and she was like, she had kind of like rewrote the script anyway, like, that script isn't even his script at that point, but what you see in the movie. And she would not allow any sort of deviation whatsoever. Not a, not a well, uh, you know, I would say, but instead of the end, no, you say, you say, and it says, and in the script, you do not change the word. And she's just a taskmaster, a little bitch. Um, you know, it, it, because it's daddy's money, like you said, you know, she gets to do, you know, she, it's either you know shut up and get paid or or find somewhere else to work i think that sooner rather than later whether it be a podcast episode or just bringing you back on the channel we have got to do a discussion about this movie i mean i mean i really go behind the scenes and and just like how how <laughs> i i'd want to call it the rise and fall of children <laughs> living dead but it's, it's really just... like the the fall and deeper the deeper <laughs> <laughs> you know the deeper fall and if people listening to this right now have no idea what we're talking about i bought children of the living dead because of sauce I, you you mentioned it yeah. and yeah. so there's a video store near me and when they told me hey look you can 
honestly, some of the a lot of these horror movies, like we don't rent a lot of the horror movies anymore. We mostly rent new release stuff because they have a senior citizen fan. Like I say, fan base. They have a senior citizen uh, clientele that keeps them going. They go and rent movies That's there. Crazy. So they told me, look, if you can, you can bring some horror DVDs up if you want to buy one. You can. I have it, and I'll have it. I'll have it till the day I die. I bought Children of the Living Dead, and I was like. Is it really one of the worst movies ever made? I mean, it is bad. It's <laughs> so I did a, a commentary on it. Oh, I know month, you did months back, and so I talk about it a lot. I think about it a lot because it was traumatizing. And I actually, I watched I watched Children of the Living Dead about the same time I watched Return, just by happenstance. They both happened to be on like one of the, the premium movie channels, um, one of like the stars, like derivatives like the movie channel or whatever the hell it's called um and just it was bad then and then go back watch it i just i realized doing the commentary how agonizingly slow the movie is and there's flashbacks <laughs> and just like it's dialogue it's just like a clear adr and they're just you know that they film just like it's down, it's you know, something it's like, else man atrocious yeah you know really quick before we wrap this up i if you're still listening to this first off you're 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 awesome and you're a return of living dead fan obviously i did find that quote of uh about the script for part two and it's really quick i just wanted to read it this is from ken weederhorn i had a script i had written with robert avrek who i brought into work with me on the de palma movie and that on the De Palma movie, and that was called Dark Tower, and it was about a haunted skyscraper. That that came up from Vinegar Syndrome a few mm. years ago. It's it's not really a great film, if I'm being honest. We were going to do that in Spain, and then Sandy met Tom Fox, who had the sequel right the title rights to Return to Living Dead, and that's how I met Tom Fox. So I happened to have this other script that I had worked on. I was flogging that around, not having much success, and Fox read it and said. Well, why don't we just call this Return of the Living Dead 2? You know, retitle it and change a couple of things. He very he very, he wanted very much to reprise the roles of the gravediggers, and that's how that happened. So, like I was saying earlier, I couldn't I I my uh my sticky note fell off, but uh, I was just surprised to know that you know Tom uh, Tom Ken Wiederhorn had written a script that was called something like about grave robbers and it turned into Return of the Living Dead 2. So I just thought that was interesting because I know that people, if you just watch the documentaries and listen to William Stout, it was just, you get the impression that Ken was just like, okay, Return of the Living Dead's great. Now let me just write a script and just do the same movie and just change yeah. a few things. So I just thought that was important to note. I just, because I don't think it's fair for people to just think that was the case about Ken. Cause he's a, I actually like Ken a lot. He's a, I like the interviews he did for the Scream Factory Blu-ray. He's a nice man. Uh, he just was not a huge horror fan, which I respect, honestly. You know, I like it's that Jamie Lee doesn't just, you know, Jamie Lee was the same way. She does it from the movies for money, and she's just always like, look, I'm not really a big well, horror fan. Well, yeah, but, you know, know, maybe it's like the time or place, but well, she's very, not perfect, very, yeah. she was very disingenuous um, in, in the promotion for the, the, the newest Halloween movie. Oh, without question. I guess, I guess we'll leave it at that. I think the honest Jamie Lee ever was was on. I mean, I say the honest she ever was. She did that horror hound convention uh, in 2013, and mm. you know, the one that's on the DVD set. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. So she was pretty open there, which I mean, she, if it's, she just says some contradictory things then sure. <laughs> she would see. But anyway, dude, let's wrap this up. This was awesome sauce. End of the day. You know, I know that I asked you last time, what does Return of the Dead mean to you? And you told me everything. And I, I can, you know, some people may think, wow, but I, I, I get that. And then some, what does Return of the Living Dead 2 and 3 mean to you? Uh, less than everything. Um, it, it, it's representative of a lot of my childhood. Um, you know, like I said, I saw these movies. Uh, the second one more than the third. I saw them a bunch because, you know, as a kid, tend to fall asleep later it gets. But, um, you know, I, I have nothing but fond memories for, for both of them. And, and I'm glad that, I mean, three to a lesser extent, I'm, I'm glad that, that, you know, a company has given them kind of the, the shine that they deserve three to a lesser extent, but, you know, like Scream Factory really kind of, uh, rolled out the red carpet for lack of a better term for, for two and Vestron did put out a Blu-ray that I don't own just, it's always wackily priced whenever I see it, but for part three, um, you know, so that they weren't lost to VHS or anything like that, which that would, that would be tragic in my opinion. You know, if it, one of those kind of lost gems, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, I think for me, it's just like, while Return of the Living Dead is my favorite movie ever, and it's clearly the best, um, I need two and three. I got to have them. It's, to me, it's my, man, and talk about it. Just What I love about it so much is, you know, and I'm sure you're the same. The reason the Nightmare franchise is, is my favorite franchise, or one of the many reasons it's my favorite franchise is, um, it's, it's just individuality. Each entry feels vastly different. I mean, yeah. two, two is polar opposite from one. Yeah. Then three is everything that two isn't. Then four completely changes its personality. And what I love, that's what I love. It's, it's like the individualism, the individualism of those movies and return of living dead. The trilogy, it's the same way. You know, of course, I say trilogy. I know, obviously, we know that there are more, but you, it's just understood. It's complete, and that's the beauty of the fan base is it's just completely understood. You, you know, it's a trilogy, and yeah. I love the individualism of it. These films were made with, uh, I'd say, love, but it's really like just t- these films were made with tough love. I mean, yeah. and uh, yeah, I mean, as much as we we t- spoke at the beginning about how. You know, everyone talks about them looking back with like rose tinted glasses, but they're still like eager. I mean, eager is not the word, but they're they're more than than uh, than game to talk about these when they come up, and that's that's similar to the Nightmare series. And I think on a small scale, maybe not nothing that that uh, we think about when we think about these things, but. Because they're still like by the people that made them, they're still kind of revered. Like, oh, I, you know, whether they had a good time on set or not, they remember it as a good time. Um, which you can't really say about a lot of the the Friday sequels or, or even the original or, or, or the Halloween movies. You are, frankly, I mean, a lot of uh, other franchises are, are one off movies. Yeah, and it, I think, and I think ultimately too is you know these movies stand the test of time. So good or bad, you know, they, uh, yeah. they keep sticking around and, you know, I love that these films got good Blu-ray treatments. I love that scream factory. Uh, I, I, I stand 
by it's probably one of the best releases Scream Scream Factory ever did. Mm-hmm. They they really packed a punch with that uh, Return of Living Dead, and I was so happy that they did part two because that, to me it gave the film credibility yeah. to us to a to a personal it was a personal thing for me, you know, because you know. Um, I don't need Scream Factory to put out all the movies I love, but you know, I uh, I just loved Part Two when I I, I when they when they said they were doing it, it kind of solidified in my mind like I wasn't wrong. Yeah, you know, it's worth I was, you know, yeah. And I think if people can reevaluate, I say reevaluate, just watch the film for what it is. You know, we we we've been able to do that with other films, uh, and, and major franchises, and you know. Watch the film for what it is. Just enjoy the content. Uh, I think when yeah, you do I mean, that, that's what makes the trilogy work so well. And I feel I, I, with two, especially like we talked about, three seems to be regarded better than two. Think of all the fans of like Friday Five or Halloween Six, mm-hmm. and when they when they talk about it, when they they defend it, it's they say exactly that. Well, just watch it for what it is. You know, it's. A, well, then why won't you give you know return to the same kind of you know a chance? <clears throat> but yeah, I, I totally agree with you. If they would do that, you know, I think they come out actually having a good time and enjoying the movie. Yep. And you know, maybe it's just that I liked the. Uh, I I don't I don't like to have the same thing done over again, but. Uh, the the soundtracks, you know, these films again. It's just like the nightmare movies. The soundtracks, my favorite movies. It's not just the movie, you know. It's the soundtrack. It's the artwork. I mean, when it comes to the Return trilogy, all three posters, amazing. Uh, the movies, great. The soundtracks, great. They have it all. They're they're you know, the, the total package. So uh, that's one hell of a trilogy, um, you know. I, I sauce. I mean, I, I don't think there's a day that goes by where not one of these films just doesn't run through my head in some form or fashion. And, and you know, maybe I'll think about the poster for two, or I'll think about a, a scene from one, or or I'll think about Melinda from three. Like every day, one of these movies is running through my head. Are you the same way? I, I think about Mindy Clark a lot. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. I, Definitely the original. The original literally is like hardwired into my brain. Um, two, I think about a lot because, like I said, that the, the the bully kid once he turns was one of the weirdly um, you know, in a movie like that one of the more frightening things to me as a kid. Like he really creeped me out. So and just for whatever reason, his face will pop into my head. I'm like oh shit, you know. Um, uh, but yeah. What a hell of a trilogy, man! It's my favorite, some of my favorite films ever. This is fun, man. I really, I'm really glad you were able to do this with me. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It uh, yeah, it's my, fun. it's my pleasure. I, I could again, I could talk about these movies all day. I just want to watch them now. Um, I think I'm going to. <laughs> yeah, me too. Anyway, guys, uh, thank you. Uh, this has been a, a special. You need a horror podcast with. The honorary member at this point, Steak Sauce, from the Off the Grill podcast. I find him on YouTube uh, at Off the Grill podcast. And uh, remind people, what time were your shows again? 7.30 p.m. in the East every Monday. There you go. All right, guys. Well, we love you. We hope you enjoyed this. If you're listening, I, I, I hope people listen to us when, we're, when they're driving. I always think that that's the best way to listen to a yeah. podcast, you know. 
That's my hope anyway. (laughs) Anyway, let me end this. I can just keep going on tangents. Thank you. We love you. We'll see you guys next time. Iris loves you. This has been a production of the You Need a Horror Podcast. You need it, we got it. Thank you for listening.